Welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. It's Adrian here, and today I'm joined by Jesse Mogul. If you guys haven't heard of Jesse before now, please check him out right now. His Instagram is at From Sobriety to Recovery, and he also has a podcast by the same name. Jesse is a personalized life and recovery based coach. He also runs the Sober Sessions group coaching, and today he shares his story of his own recovery journey, how he recovered from an alcohol and drug addiction. But not only how he just recovered and became sober, but how he really came to a point of thriving in life. Part of what we talk about is neurolinguistic programming, how to change the way that you think about your own story and your own past, and a lot more great stuff. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And as always, don't forget to follow and leave us a review. Here is Jesse Mogul. Hey, Jesse, how's it going? Very well, very well, Adrian. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man. I uh, I hope you're not too tired out after our uh, after our podcast just five minutes ago. That was a great time. <laughs> it was a great time, and I and I love that we uh, we're doing the shows back to back because I think that we get to keep this energy and this rapport, and I think it's going to be an awesome time sharing um, sharing together on your episode. Yeah, and for everybody that's listening, check out you got to check out Jesse's podcast. Um, it's uh, from sobriety to recovery, and I just did a little interview on there. Um, but uh, yeah, he's an incredible host and his podcast has a lot of good stuff. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you on my podcast now. Yeah. If your listeners have ever wanted to hear you on the other side, getting asked the questions, I highly recommend y'all go check yeah. it out. Adrian yeah. is, is, he, he, is, he is a wordsmith on the microphone. You will walk away with a lot of really awesome connective moments with, with you. <laughs> it was really great. Thanks, man. Um, so listen, I'm, I'm going to go way back to, uh, to, to early history. I'm, I'm curious about um, when the first time you tried a substance was and, and what was going on in your life at, at the time or, or what your relationship was with that substance at the very beginning. Um, and um, we can go from there. Awesome. Yes. I remember it very distinctly. I was at my buddy Jeremy's house. We were all... Um, we were all music men. We were in like a glee club together and his parents would go out and uh, gamble on the weekend. So his house was always available to us. And uh, yeah, so we got a bunch of peach snops and drank it too much. And of course I've puked like every normal kid should drinking, you know, a pint of peach snops. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was, it, it was a horribly disgusting experience. And I don't think I drank again until the summer after I graduated high school. And then my parents got announced their divorce and mom moved to Florida and I had a car and a job and a dad who worked too much. So, or you know, worked as much as he chose 18 hours a day. So all of a sudden I just had free reign of that city and uh, a liquor store that had no problem selling to somebody who clearly was underage. Wow. Yeah. And, and before that in the high school years, do you think there was anything um, out of the ordinary about your high school experience? Did you have anything happen or any, ways of coping that might not have involved alcohol? Yeah, you know, uh, I've talked about this before. It's, you know, I, we moved around a lot because my dad was a serial entrepreneur and he bought car dealerships and would fix wow. them all up and make them profitable and then move on to the next. So about every year of my childhood, we moved into a different school district. So I was constantly seeking uh, friends, um, you know, uh, seeking approval from different cliques. And this, this desire to feel like I fit in um, obviously I, I, mean, I was bullied to a certain extent. I just always felt like an outcast. And so when I look back at what that feeling of, of feeling that I was an outcast in elementary school, middle school and high school, when I got to college, I told myself I would not feel like an outcast anymore. And the easiest social circle to join is the addiction one. And mm. if you're ready to drink <laughs> copious amounts of beer and, and snort cocaine and smoke a ton of pot in college, and you, and you have the money to bring that stuff around for other people, you are going to become the life of the party very quickly. And that is yeah. exactly how it played out for me. Oh, that's so funny. It's like, um, I feel like in grade school or high school, the person who can run the fastest and score the most goals in a sport is, uh, is the person people want to be friends with. And then once you get to college, it's like the person who can drink the most beers and the person who yeah. can uh, have the coolest drinking story is, uh, is the life of the party, like you say. So, um, so where did that lead you? How did the rest of your college years go? Not well. It's... <laughs> 
my freshman roommate at Ball State University, his dad actually made LSD. And so he oh, would wow. go back. Yeah, that was a really that back then I thought it was really awesome. Looking back, it yeah. was not the best situation for someone looking to be self-destructive. Um, so he would he would go home and bring back, you know, a Bible of LSD and we would unleash it on campus. And uh three years of doing that and just, you know pushing it beyond the limits and a 0.02, I think it was a 0.2 was my last uh, GPA of my junior spring semester. Wow. Ball State had enough of me. My dad announced that he was moving to Orlando with my sister. And I said, can I come along? This school isn't working for me. He said, yes. And we went down to Orlando and I got, you know, first it, it took about a year of being a wet and wild lifeguard until I discovered the raver scene. And then all of a sudden ketamine and ecstasy and uh, all this other stuff showed up into the game and did that for four years. And then somehow, somehow I managed to get the grades uh, at Valencia community college to go to UF. And when I got there, that scene was really just heavily um, alcohol dependent and marijuana dependent. So the ecstasy and the ketamine, all that stuff, stayed in Orlando and I just pretty much was you know one of these bartenders who would you know buy a 50 bag of coke on any given night and do that while drinking copious amounts of alcohol and skipping a ton of classes yeah so 12 years in college and I, I still if it wasn't for my academic advisor uh, Sandra there is a zero percent chance that I would have graduated college that woman just refused to let me fail and uh never the day doesn't go by where I don't bless that woman for caring about <laughs> me more than anybody in my family was it blows my mind because uh as soon as i started listening to your podcast i thought oh this is a highly educated guy this is a guy with a high iq not to like blow up your head too much here but <laughs> you're very well spoken so it it's crazy when i hear that and i hear it all the time in people in recovery who failed high school barely scraped through university and then on the other side of sobriety and in recovery you hear them and they're eloquent and they're they're intelligent and what do you think um what do you think that was about do you think it was just the um like no time to put towards school or um you didn't believe you could do well at school like what do you think was part of that low gpa well certainly at ball state you know it was just i just stopped going to classes i just yeah. didn't care and you know i mean elementary middle school high school i was a straight a student you know tops tops in my class every year i think i was top 10 my senior year in high school seventh and it's like, to me, learning was just, it wasn't necessarily easy. I just put so much time into it because, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when I was younger, the belt would come out if I got anything less than an A. And so I was just drilled into me, you know, if I'm going to get any version of my father's love, it's going to come through good grades. And so when you get older and then you get grounded rather than spanked, um, I just didn't want to be grounded. So I just got great grades and I really thought college would be that easy. And it wasn't. You have to put mm. so much more effort into it. So I had the background of how to get good grades. And there would be times where I would say, okay, I can't drink for the next month. I got to get A's and on all these tests because I've screwed up the rest of the semester. So I'd stop drinking for a month and get A's on all the tests and A's on all the papers. And I'd walk away with a 3.0. And then, I mean, the day, the second my last test was done, I'd have a water bottle full of vodka in my backpack. Mm -hmm. I'd pull it out. And, you know, the next 10 days were, you know, were apocalypse time. And so I knew how to get the good grades. And, and, and I mean, I ended up graduating with, I think, somewhere in the 350 to almost 400 credit hours. Like I just kept taking classes wow. when I was well past the point where I could have graduated. I just kept yeah. changing my major because I wanted to hide in college. So uh, I knew I could get the grades. I just didn't want to put the time in to get them because that meant not going off and getting drunk. <laughs> right. So it was, so college was almost like a, um, a limbo period for you where you could just be doing something with your life, but also have time to party and um, not actually move on to the next stage of reality. Is that, is that about right? What a great way to put it. It literally was. You're yeah. right, Adrian. It was 12 years of limbo where I was like, as long as I'm here, I have this semblance of doing something for the betterment of the long-term version of Jesse Mogul. Um, yeah. Whereas in reality, it was just, uh, I was just hiding from so much, but I could always say, Hey, at least I'm in college. I got, yeah. You I have to have something to say. You have to have some answer for when people are like, yeah, what are you up to? What are you doing? So <laughs> your answer was school for like 12 years. And in reality, it was just drinking and partying and doing whatever drugs you could get your hands on. And tell me more about the, the apocalypse nickname. You mentioned apocalypse and 
So why did, uh, why did your friends end up calling you that? I have a group of friends from Gainesville and uh, we're all still very close. And there would be, um, you know, we, we had a friend we'd call the tornado. We had a friend we called the hurricane and the monsoon. And whenever I would come around and really be in Jesse mode, it was like all of these things. It was the wildfire. It was the nuclear holocaust. Everything that all of our names had, it was just, I was all of them. And so it just became, it's like, okay, well, you're the apocalypse because when you come around, it's all of us in one person. And uh, which, you know, when you're younger in your mid twenties, that's hilarious to have that title. Uh, Whenever they're still saying that to you at your buddy's wedding, when you black out and start trying to make out with all the married women, uh, it's not so funny anymore. And that, that was, that was an experience in 2015 or 16 that it was one of the last ones where I was like, okay, this is this, I can't be the apocalypse at 40. This is not acceptable behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So like hurricanes getting married and He's yeah. starting to like, he's starting to calm down a little bit, but you're still full tilt. Right. Um, and you're trying to make out with his wife in a blackout yeah. on the dance floor. So that's really, uh, you know, oh, the, man. Yeah. That's when those good. guys were, became ashamed of me, I had, I had to really start looking at myself in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, what about your family? So you're saying that, um, your it's, it seems like your parents were kind of just letting you at that point They they weren't, uh, trying too hard to, to help you out. Um, what was that experience like? Like, did they ever try and get you into rehab or anything like that? So I have, my family situation is interesting. So I, I talk about the, my dad a lot and he's the, there's the stepdad who raised me, Steve. And so that's who I call dad. I have a bio dad named Rusty who's still alive. Steve has passed away for about 10 years now. Um, and then my mom, Lynette, um, when the divorce happened, she dove into alcoholism. Uh, da- dad, Steve was always a workaholic. And then there was Rusty who I didn't meet until I was 17. And so, uh, and he's a drug and alcohol abuse counselor because addiction wow. runs through our family, right? And so, um, he was so afraid of losing connection with me at that 18 to 22 mark when I was really out of control in ball state um, that he really didn't speak out as much as I, I mean, there would be times where I would basically just say, dude, just, just tell me to stop doing this. And I will, he was so afraid of saying the wrong thing that he Mm. said nothing. And uh, the other two, I mean, Steve stepdad, he, when we moved to Orlando, would give me things he printed off the internet about uh, alcohol addiction and drug addiction. And he was the only one, the one who worked the most, who I thought cared the least, was the only one who offered a stick and, and was like, dude, if you want me to help pull you out of this quicksand, I'm ready to do it. And yeah. because of my disdain for how he treated me as a child, I just refused to allow him to be a part of anything, let alone wow. uh, getting me out of that. And so ultimately, um, you know, they all meant well, they did the best they could with the resources they had, but it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't enough or I wasn't able to open my mind to it either way. You know, I'm at fault more than they are because I'm the one who made all the decisions and the choices. Totally. And I think that's, that's such an important mindset to retain and, and to take that responsibility and not to play the victim as hard as it can be. But, um, at the time, um, when you're going through that period where, your your biological father is a a drug addiction counselor like you know that what you're doing is damaging and and you know that these people want you to get better um how did you feel about it at the time what was going through your head and and what was your view of yourself in that period definitely in my 20s i just i i thought i was the coolest thing since sliced bread you know i mean i was the life <laughs> yeah. of the party i had a social circle of 100 people every time i showed up somewhere people loved loved having me there i got invited to all the parties if i threw a party i could guarantee that the line would be out the door of my house trying to get in um, and i just at no point in time in my 20s did i think i knew that this wasn't healthy and the moment alcohol and, and tobacco and, and weed and everything else touched my lips i knew one day i'd have to quit or die or never become the version of myself i knew i could i knew i'd have to quit or die um, i just was like no nah, i'm too young i, I don't want to make that decision right now everything about me 
all the identities, all the labels that I love about myself is tied to me being the life of the party. And mm -hmm. my sister and I have long believed that nobody loves an, an unhappy mogul. So the last thing we could do is ever be unhappy or vulnerable around our friends because we had told ourselves that we only had these friends because we partied so hard and we brought mm -hmm. all the good drugs. Mm -hmm. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, I couldn't break out of. That's really tough. That's really tough. Like the support that you get and the love that you get is all based on this sort of party animal persona that you've created. So I can only imagine the fear of losing that persona or the fear of trying something different would be pretty huge. Um, and oh, yeah. what, what eventually led, so you have that, um, the wedding moment, what other moments really brought you to the point of trying to change? I will, uh, so many, you know, uh, there's this belief that, you know, you just wake up one day and you're like, that's it. I've had enough. I'm going to get sober. And I think it's thousands of those mornings that we all experience that bring us to that. And uh, when my sister, so I broke my leg on August 13th of 2016. And that is what led me to lay in my bed for three months and just try to drink myself to death during the period of time where my leg was supposed to be healing, but I was just drinking myself to death. My sister checked herself into rehab. And um, it was just, to me, that was just such a powerful thing to see mm -hmm. her do. Um, I just thought, you know, if she can do it, then I should be able to do this too. You know, I mean, I'm the older brother, you know, I, I was like, I'm the one who went to college. I was, I'm not knocking her down by any stretch, but at the time my ego was like, well, fr frick, if my sister can do it, then I can totally do this. And, um, and I still didn't, I still waited months and she even had a relapse in there. And I was like, oh, that's proof that if she can't do it, then I can't do it. I was just looking mm -hmm. for any reason to hold on to the addiction. Yeah. Um, and then going towards the end of 2016 into 2017, I had told myself I'd stop drinking the day after the Super Bowl. And the from about middle of December till January 12th, um, the the blackouts were coming fast and furious. I couldn't uh, hold, I, I would pee my bed. So I started sleeping in the bathtub and then I started having wow. nosebleeds and I'd wake up in the middle of the night just puking. And it's like my body, it was... Uh, it's like it was it was telling me dude this is the swan song like your skin is yellow your teeth look weird like you, you're it's like it's we're done figure it out bro and uh that was it you know i just i literally woke up that morning of the 12th and was like i called up kaiser and was like how do i become involved tell me what to do i'll come in today and uh my the detox was so hardcore at the time. They're like, you can come in today. And I was like, you know what? I'll just come in on Monday. And that was a Thursday. And I did, I just laid in bed the rest of the weekend when I didn't have to be at work and just hot, cold shivers. It was miserable. And my first month was just miserable detoxing my body from what I had done to it since August. It was uncontrollable. I'll never forget that pain ever. I'll never forget that pain. And another painful moment um, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned, and you mentioned it now as well about breaking your leg. And you mentioned earlier that you had been in the hospital for, I think it was four months or something like that. What was that experience like? Because I'm, I'm assuming you didn't have any access to substances while you were there. Um, could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, that the four months that I was wrapped up, I was in and out of the hospital. So I didn't have, so that's what led the addiction. So I didn't have to stay in the hospital, though. Oh, they I see. They certainly wanted me to because when I'd come in for checkups, they would be like, "Are you drunk right now?" I mean, I was. I, I, I would go to these doctor's appointments, Adrian, blacked out and not even wow. remember going to them. Uh, and I was driving myself there and driving myself back and lying to them that I had somebody drop me off because I didn't want them to not let me go home. No kidding. Um, multiple times they were like, "You know, we, we we need to do something. You need to check yourself." And this was before I even had Kaiser, and these doctors were not paying attention like Kaiser ultimately did. Um, and so that was what led me. So yeah, I think maybe I got, I got the, I mean, it should have been more clear. So I, unfortunately I wasn't locked in the hospital. In fact, I have a story where I went to Trader Joe's and filled up my grocery cart with about 60 bottles of wine and about 15 bottles of vodka and enough beer to throw a frat party. And it took two carts and I, I'm here in this gigantic knee brace. Like my leg is completely shredded and I go to the grocery store and, and buy all of this booze and I spend the rest of the day putting it inside of a blanket and then bouncing my butt up 
the stairs to get all the booze into my room and then just holding myself off in my room for the next month and only subsisting off of Domino's and Pizza Hut that I could have delivered. And that's what I, that's what I did for the month of September into October. And if I wasn't so ashamed of it, I would have pictures of this, but I, I wouldn't even answer my phone. I just turned it off and put it Mm -hmm. in the drawer and I wouldn't talk to anyone for weeks. That's so dangerous. And especially if your body's already trying to recover from an injury, I can only imagine the mental health consequences of that and, and what that would have been like and going through that. But, um, and, and that wasn't the point that you got sober. So it took you a little bit longer after that for the experience of um, finally calling up Kaiser. Is that right? Yeah, there was, you know, as much as the signs were pointing me towards sobriety, uh, you know, it's like, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live this way. And Mm -hmm. I knew that something needed to change. I just, the idea of taking that step, it's like, I just, alcohol had become my best friend and I, you know, I, I'd let go of weed, of Coke, everything. And the only thing left was alcohol and cigarettes. And I just, the idea of, of taking that step, it's like everything I knew was around just constantly being intoxicated. And I just didn't know how I could go a day, let alone the rest of my life. And, and thankfully uh, the whole one day at a time is, is so prevalent in our world that mm-hmm. somebody's like, dude, you don't have to worry about next month. Just make it through the 13th of January and then the 14th and then it'll be okay. But I, I just could not wrap my head around the idea that I would never have alcohol in my body again. And it, uh, it was just so tough to make that decision. Yeah. Oh, you're telling me, I, I almost had this idea. Like I would make deals with myself where I would say, all you have to do is not do this for the next day or the next couple of days. And then on Monday, if you still want to do it, go ahead. And I would actually tell myself that. And which sounds a little bit crazy, but it really helped me because Monday would come around and then I would make myself another deal where it would be like, okay, if you still want to do this, you can do this on Thursday or something would change in that time. Or I'd have something, some other little bit of clarity that reminded me what that would lead to. Um, But um, tell me more about Kaiser and tell me more about some of the things that you heard or the, what was it that started to help you to get better? I think when I, I walked in to Kaiser, it just immediately felt like they had been waiting for me for years. And when I went to, to visit my sister at her rehab facility in Colorado, um, all it was like a family weekend. And so they're sitting here and they're giving presentations to all the family members about alcohol addiction and drug addiction and, and what it does. And I think I was the only one in there who was actively addicted to any, you know, the rest were just parents. I'm sure whatever, I don't know what they had going on. So let me not mind read, but I knew what I was going through. And it was like, they were talking to me with all the things they were saying about my sister. I was like, this is, this, you're talking about me. This isn't right. my sister. This is me you're talking about. And so when I got into Kaiser and they were like, yes, this is who you have become, but we promise you, if you're just willing to follow our steps and come to our meetings, like there, you, you will slowly start to regain who you used to be. And uh, I kept alcohol in my room for the first, uh, I probably gave that all away to my roommate sometime around the beginning of, to middle of February. So I kept alcohol in my room for the first three weeks, I think it was just as like you were just saying about if you can just make it to Monday then you can drink. I I was like, look, I was like, it's, it's here. It's underneath your bed. It's in the drawer. You don't even have to get out of bed. You could literally roll over, open up this drawer and there's a bottle of Jack Daniels. You want it so bad, dude, there it is in my body. And I was like, no, no, I don't want it that bad. I don't want it at all. And once I got to a certain point, I was like, I don't need the temptation anymore. I know that the decision I made to get sober is the best decision that I could have made for myself. And when I gave that all to my roommate, it was like, I don't know. It's like a wings or something. It's mm-hmm. like, I just, I, I felt like I had made it through any kind of temptation and I was ready to do this. And, and of course, Kaiser, they just, they say the most uplifting stuff when you go into these meetings and they don't even, I don't even know if they mean to, but everything, even the meetings I went to Adrian, no matter what the person said, I heard it as really being uplifting. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's amazing. You were, you were, because that's what you needed to hear. And that's what you were looking for. You had that perspective shift, I guess. 
I really believe that if you put something in your head and you want to accomplish it or you're trying to figure it out, you know, like I'm building a, I'm, I'm building a addiction recovery program that helps people when we're AA and refuge and all those places stop, they'll get you sober, but they're not going to necessarily tell you how to mm-hmm. create your own business or, or have a best relationship ever. And so I'm creating a program around that and I'll hear little sentences in television shows and movies that trigger a thought. It's, and it's like, if you're looking for an answer, your brain will find it. Yeah. And, and I really do believe that as soon as you decide you want to be sober, your brain will start showing you answers on how to make that happen. You just have to be listening. So what was the next phase of that recovery journey? So you do Kaiser. Um, what was it that you did afterwards? Or is that something that you continue to do? I'm not, I'm, I'm not really familiar with Kaiser, so I'm not sure how that works. Yeah, so uh, I'm still there. I mean, they still have meetings all the time like they used to, but I I went they have they had relapse prevention on Monday nights and I went through that course 3 times. They had alcohol awareness on Wednesday nights and I went through that 3 times. They had a codependency course I went through one time. I still have my therapist, uh Melissa, she's amazing. I still see her uh frequently in because I've been in the program as long, I don't get her every week, but I still get her at least once or twice a month. And there's always meetings to go attend there. I did refuge recovery. I started doing mm, that at month right. six and did that for six months and went through their four truths and, 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 and went through their program and did all that. And so, and now, uh, I, now my recovery is really a lot, all about the give back. So, you know, I coach people. I have the, the group coaching I do on Thursday nights. I do the podcasts. I go speak at addiction recovery centers. And it, right now, just via Zoom, I speak at them. Young people in recovery have had Amazing. me speak multiple times. So now my addiction recovery Recovery is very similar to you. You're doing the give back with this show. I'm doing the give back with mine, and then all the other things that I've learned how to do through NLP and, and, and you know being a master practitioner of that. Oh man, I really want to get into um, to what you just mentioned with NLP and and some of these other topics. But before that, just going back to refuge because you mentioned refuge earlier as more of a Buddhist um, take on things, while AA is Christian. And I have a lot of respect for Buddhism and, um, and Eastern philosophy. So could you tell me a little bit more about refuge and, and do you remember like what the four truths are as you, I think you mentioned? Yeah. I mean, I don't now, cause that was a couple years ago. I wish I, you know, I could probably Google that real fast. Um, I don't remember what it was, but I remember when I first joined, somebody decided they were like, we're going to have a, a journaling group and we're going to go in and there's all these different questions that you go through. And we would jur- sit there in a classroom. Without, it was just like a church, but not. It was just like a meeting room. And we'd all sit there and just write in the same room with each other. And just we held space for us to write about, you know, what it is that, we're su- what, that we suffered from, what it is that we had shame about, what it is that we had grief about and trauma around and because it's you know buddha based there was you know lots of really amazing meditations and like just getting centered in yourself and and having this wholeness about you that no one had ever really talked to me about and so when i you know and i always loved the whole idea of buddhist i mean i've watched that movie seven years in tibet with brad mm. pitt oh yeah so many times i'm like oh my god these people are like one with the universe like they are literally the walking epitome of a godlike creature on our mm-hmm. planet mm-hmm. and and uh, to get into their religion and use that for my addiction recovery just seemed like such a powerful thing to incorporate. Oh, man. Yeah, you're speaking my language. I Meditation was such a big part of my recovery. I can't emphasize it enough um, because for me, it was like my mind just I couldn't control all of these thoughts and all of these obsessions. And so meditation started to slow down that crazy inner dialogue and it gave me a little uh, not to use the word again, but refuge. It gave me like a little space where I could just watch the thoughts go by and, and not feel like I was thinking them, but feel like I was just watching them go by. And um, is meditation still a part of your practice today? It is. It is. I mean, I've, I, I long claimed that I'm not 
great at meditation. Yeah, yeah me neither. My mind, my <laughs> mind loves to wander and start to daydream and get off. And I've, you know, but enough people have told me there's no wrong way. So if you notice your thoughts going, bring them back. Sometimes I just let the daydream play out and say, okay, yeah. if you, this is what you want to do, I'll give you three minutes. Get it out of <laughs> out of your system. Nice. Um, yes, you know, am I ready to you know uh, go off and live on top of a mountain in Tibet? No, they would probably not say that. But <laughs> no, me um, neither. There's a calming effect that just comes from, um, I'll do it in my car. I have this little one minute meditation that I like to do in my car before I put it into drive just to get myself centered and, and try to break myself out of that trance that we go through every day where you get in your car and you go to drive somewhere you've driven to before. You don't even remember how you got there. And I just try to be more aware of, you know, the chipmunk running up the tree at the stoplight and things like that. So just thinking about my breathing and breathing in deep and then exhaling it like a like in a four count just little things like that that i'll bring out it's just it's amazing when i start to get really just you know like we talked about earlier about how we both love to work and we find a lot of purpose in what we do with our lives there's sometimes where it, be, it just becomes like this gigantic hurricane in my brain of things i'm wanting to do and to just think about my breathing for a few minutes can just center me in a heartbeat. And then I can say, okay, what is it that I need to do now in order to move myself forward in this one particular area? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is, maybe we are a little bit extreme with the work, but it's amazing that, I don't know. I just, I have a lot of appreciation for the work that you have done with the podcast, as well as um, what you're talking about, about giving talks and it's, maybe there's a better balance to find, but I just think it's awesome what you're doing. So tell, tell me more about the sobriety to recovery podcast and what is it about that name um, that you're trying to convey? Excellent. Excellent question. And I remember I had a social media manager who was also a really good friend that I met in my NLP classes um, named Tina. She was just fantastic. And we were sitting down one day, I think, you know, and I was like, okay, I want to, I really, I've got to do a sobriety to, to you know, sobriety. I, now I'm saying sobriety to recovery. Like it's always been there. But at the time I was like, I just want to do a, a podcast about sobriety and about addiction recovery. And she's like, well, what are, how do you see that? And it, through this conversation, it came out that sobriety isn't the same as addiction recovery. And my yeah. therapist told me this all the time. So she probably planted the seed. Actually, Melissa probably is the one who came up with the name without actually saying this is the name for it. Whereas sobriety is when you first get into it, you're white knuckling it, you're counting the days. It's like just trying to make it through the next five minutes. And when you get into addiction recovery, you've become more grounded and centered in this new uh, world that you're in. And you're not worried about days and the, the next trigger sending you down the deep end. Now you're actually working through all the trauma and the suffering mm -hmm. that brought you into addiction. And so really to me, it became this journey. It's like, Oh, okay. So when you start, you're in sobriety and your goal is to get into addiction recovery so that your journey can be prolonged and, be, and can become part of who you are and not just something that you're doing. And so from sobriety, to recovery just literally sprung out of this conversation with Tina and it has become the backbone for everything that I do. Man, it jumped out at me as soon as I saw the name of your Instagram and the name of the podcast, because that's something that I thought about a lot as well. And something that was kind of hammered into my mind that I don't know, it just seems sobriety is, is just stopping the use of substances or, or behavior. And then recovery is healing the underlying causes of why you did those behaviors in the first place. And the difference there is huge. And what is it that um, has helped you in that recovery piece? Like what is it that you do today or that you look back on and, and want to provide to other people? Well, first of all, props for you for, nailing the nailing the whole name of the show like that's <laughs> all that stuff i said works too but what you just said works just as well um so props to you for seeing that connection before we even discussed it uh you know when it comes to what i do to actively stay involved in my addiction recovery uh one of the the main things i've done so i i had to build up in order to build a coaching program that I thought could help everybody else, I first had to build a coaching program that could help me. And when I first got into a, a sobriety and was looking to move into addiction recovery, uh, a lot of the times I would go to bed at night and I'd be like, well, what did I do to really help myself today? And I, because everything to me is a system, everything I love systems. I mean, NLP teaches systems mm -hmm. and, and 
I think for a lot of addicts, we just had certain systems in our lives that just kept us from just, you know, completely blowing the whole thing up. So I was like, well, then I need to have a system for my addiction recovery. And I was like, what are the main things that a human could be working on any given day? And I came up with physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. And so I was like, okay, every single day I have, and I call it PIMS, P-E-M-S for physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. Mm -hmm. Every day I do one thing physical, one thing emotional, one thing mental, and one thing spiritual. And so I can go to bed every day saying, I did something to better myself. I did mm, something for mm-hmm. my addiction recovery. So if it's a 30 minute workout, there's physical. If it's emotional, then that I have an, uh, then it's like reading a book that helps me get in touch with my grief or shame. Mm, if it's mental, mm. it's, you know, talking to you or it's talking to a friend and it, discussing mental, cool mental things and spiritual. That to me was the easiest one to figure out because that was meditation. Wow. I, I, that was my, I was going to ask about that, about how you differentiate the idea of emotional and mental. Um, and that's really cool. I think um, doing a podcast like this has got a knockout at least two out of the four. So we're doing good. We're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, you mentioned before you're talking about NLP, the um, I'm going to mess up the name. It's neuro uh, neuro lingual programming, reprogramming. Pretty close. Neuro-linguistic okay. programming. Okay. So in neuro is the, the you know, neuro is the brain, linguistics is language, and programming is programming, right? And so it's really the lost owner's manual of the mind, you know, of how our brain uses languages, how our brain uses pictures, little tiny movies uh, mm. in, inside of it. And, you know, and these, these languages, these pictures, and these movies become the programming and how of our entire lives and these little sequences. And we literally will, you know, we'll get triggered by something or we'll see something in this little picture or image or, or words will get thrown into our head. And we already have a pre-programmed response to it because we've been building these habituated sequences since we were children. Cause the human brain doesn't want to spend a ton of energy trying to figure right. every single thing out all the time. Yeah, it optimizes. It chooses the quickest path. To, yeah. Right. It deletes, it distorts and it generalizes because you take in 2 billion bits of data or 2 million bits of data every second, but the conscious brain can only handle a 128. So you've got this humongous hard drive that is the unconscious mind that mm. just sequences things because it, it would rather you not have to remember how to brush your teeth every day. Well, it does it with how you talk to your mom and your dad and how you get along mm. with your boss. All of these things are predetermined. If you can pull them out of your unconscious into your conscious mind, you can actually change the sequence that these things happen in and you can thus change your entire perspective around this anything in your life that's incredible and i i want after this conversation i'm going to look more into this because that really sounds like something i would get a lot out of um i did a program called landmark i don't know if you've heard of it i have Um, i have and okay that's that's awesome it's uh i know a few people in recovery who've done it as well and one of the things they talk about in landmark is the story like the story that we tell ourselves um, does that relate to the linguistic programming at all? Like, is that, is, is part of the work there about changing words and changing, um, the way that we describe things? Absolutely. In fact, Landmark, uh, if I remember the history of it correctly, it, it's on my, it was, it was for a while, it was on my to-do list. I still think one day I'll do it because the people I know who've gone through it, uh, almost all my NLP uh, brethren, the people I went through all these classes with, they had done landmark and that's really what turned them on into diving deeper. Mm-hmm. And so NLP is actually uh, one of the, the backbones of landmark, if I remember correctly, because they all talk about languages and stories. And this, let's, whatever story you tell yourself, Adrian, for who you are and how you got to where you go, like literally every little step of the way during that story is another picture. It's another image that you could mm-hmm. go inside your head and you could change to just the easiest way for me to describe it is if there was ever a moment in your life that was, uh, okay, let me just use my example. When I broke my leg skydiving that day and I was sober, I just landed wrong. I completely blew up my knee. I saw that moment in my life as the worst day of my life. Mm-hmm. I was stuck inside my room by myself. And next thing you know, I'm drinking myself to death, but breaking my leg and drinking myself to death for the next six months led me to sobriety and recovery. And so now when I look back at breaking my leg, I I think that that 
moment of breaking my leg is what led me to getting sober. So therefore it saved my life. And so Mm -hmm. how I used to picture that moment, bad, worst day ever, I now see it as my awakening, best moment of my life. And all because I changed my perspective around it. And you can literally do this with anything that's ever happened in your life. So let's say, um, because I know that there's going to be listeners and there's going to be people who've experienced very traumatic things like uh, rape or um, child abuse or um, things that we can all agree are, are devastating and are, are negative things. And how could reprogramming or rethinking of, uh, uh, of the narrative of that, how could that help somebody get through something like that? Have you ever dealt with that with coaching? I have, and it's and it's tough to discuss on the microphone because you know again I want to be I want to be mindful of people's traumas yeah. and not triggering things. But I have had to discuss this on a microphone, so it works to my favor in that regard. Uh, let's let's take a rape or a child abuse moment. Um, obviously, that 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 happened, and that trauma is not that person's fault. You know, it, now I also will say it's their responsibility to heal from it. But it, what I mean by that is that you know a lot of people will walk away from that and they'll feel less than they'll feel like they were the victim they'll they, they'll feel like that moment is going to define who they are forever because they can often look at it as the bad horrible moment that it was and a good way to use nlp is to just change who they are coming out of it like the strength it takes to overcome a rape or a child abuse moment in your life and to realize that all the resources that you use to combat the negative imagery you had of yourself and how much you beat yourself up it was my fault i should have done this i should have done that instead of seeing that you know what somebody else did to you was not your fault that's that's Mm -hmm. on them but how you picture yourself and grow from it walking away from that trauma is is where you can start to really grow and develop who you are and so it's like yes this happened but you don't have to see yourself as a victim you can actually Mm -hmm. see yourself as the warrior you are for having gone through it and overcome it and now you can take what you learned and and healing from it and obviously there's always healing and now you could go out and you could find somebody else who had a similar experience and you could guide them. So it's like that simple little switch of going from victim to warrior can, you know, just, it it can literally change the course of that person's life moving forward. And then, like you said, in my show, when they heal from it and then they go and help somebody else heal from it. Mm -hmm. Now, now they're, now their tree of life has just touched somebody else. And then you don't even know the exponential growth of that healing moment. Right. And so that's one of the ways you change the picture. So you don't see yourself as the horrible victim, but you see yourself as the strength of a warrior. And now you go teach other people how to have strength of a warrior. Even if it's just in how you behave, you don't mm-hmm. even teach a class. You just, you just show the world through your actions and behaviors. You don't even know how many lives you can change just by shifting your own perspective. I hope that that wow, was a long no. answer. No, that, that was worked. an amazing. And I was worried when I asked you that question because it's such a big thing to unpack and it's it's tough to generalize, right? Because people have very, very specific things that might've happened to them and and what you say might not apply to everybody. But I think you did a really good job answering that. And um, it's interesting that it's it's you seem to focus on the view of the self, like the cognitions that you have around who you are and what it says about you. And that seems so important to me because one thing I wanted to talk about with MLP is the idea of labeling yourself as an alcoholic or an addict. And some people have very different views about this. And um, I'm curious about your perspective with NLP. Um, what do you think about, do you refer to yourself as an addict? I don't. And you're right. You're nailing some really great questions here. (laughs) And and when I answer this question too, and I say this, like, you know, if if you're one of these people who who likes to say that, you know, hi, I'm Jesse and I'm an addict, you, you, you can label and identify yourself however you see fit. I'm not here to tell you how to work your program by any stretch of the imagination. I will say this though, is that when you know, you're, when you constantly are reminding yourself or saying, I am an addict and you have one day or a thousand days or a thousand years, it's like, but you're, you're, you know, you're in addiction recovery. It's why on my show, I say, my name is Jesse Mogul and I am in addiction recovery mm-hmm. because that's what I want my brain to know. My, and some people say, well, I have to remind myself that I'm an addict because I could fall back in. And I'm like, 
you know, for me, and again, maybe this is a really op great opportunity for some other people out there to have a perspective shift. I don't need to be reminded that I'm an addict. I got a story about blacking out in Indonesia and <laughs> coming to in Singapore. I, I tried to make out with my buddy's, uh, you know, his wife who yeah. he had just married yeah, yeah. 10 minutes before at his wedding. I got down the <laughs> I am an addict part. No problemo. Yeah. I remember what my detox from addiction was like in January and February of 2017. So I, I think labels and identities are extremely important. I think the languages that we use to describe ourselves and to, and, and to talk about the world around us, I think they are be, so, they're so much more relevant than most people give them credit for. So no, I won't say that I'm an addict. I don't need to be reminded. I know. I mm -hmm, Trust me, mm -hmm. I will not touch alcohol for the rest of my life. I want my brain to know I'm in addiction recovery because I want it, I want that little pat on the head that says, you're doing a great job. You know what? Let's go do another great job today. <laughs> yeah. And you do have to treat your brain like that. I think it's it's funny when I, sometimes it's funny when I hear people talk about their brain as like, you're not totally identifying with your brain and your mind if you're able to tell it things, right? It's it's this, it's like your body. It's It is a part of your body and it does have to be trained and it's uh, it's incredible to me how plastic it is, how much mm -hmm. variability there really is. And so what you're talking about where you refer to yourself as um, you are in recovery, I think that's amazing because um, it reminds me of this story of um, race car drivers learning to avoid crashes. So one of the ways that they train them is they'll... Um, they'll have one wheel sort of lift off. They have a special car where one wheel can be lifted off and it causes the car to go into a skid. And um, what they train the driver to do is look away from the wall and towards the road when that mm -hmm. happens. And by looking towards the road, it helps them to turn and avoid a crash. Um, and I think by referring to yourself as an addict in recovery, you're looking towards that road instead of staring at the wall. Um, and Maybe it's not for everybody. Maybe some people still prefer to refer to themselves as an addict or an alcoholic, but I agree with you. I think it's uh, after a certain amount of time, um, it can it can maybe lead to a crash or um, it might be the wrong emphasis. First of all, I love that metaphor. I'm totally going to snag that metaphor and use that on stage sometime. That yeah, is go such for a it. great. And, you know, like if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. It really yeah. is. It's that whole yeah. Yoda. There is no, there is no do. <laughs> there is no try. There is either yeah. do or do not. And if you, if you want to fight for your limitations, if you want to fight for the things you think you cannot do, congratulations. You're going to win and you're not going to be able to do those things that you can't do. And your, your limitations will forever be yours. If you want to fight for those, by all means, I think we all know what fighting for limitations feels like. I prefer to step into the fighting for the, the endless opportunities and the choices I can make to grow into this better person. Mm -hmm. And one of my number one ways to do it is in my languages. I've mm -hmm. replaced should and would and could and try. And I catch myself, you know, still using definitives, always, never, anyone, everything. I'll catch myself using these words and I'll stop and I'll, I'll just correct myself right there. And uh, one of my favorite speeches to give is called the power of yet, where just because mm -hmm. you don't know how to do something now doesn't mean that you don't know how to, you couldn't you learn how to do it later. So I might, some of you might be like, well, you know, do you know how to play the guitar? Well, I mean, I am practicing, so I know how to play it, but am I as good as other people? Not yet. And mm -hmm. it yet opens up possibility and you want to be feeding your brain the idea that everything is possible if you can prioritize it. And we have only so much time in our day to prioritize things. So you have to choose what matters the most to you now and then let the other stuff just sort of sit in a waiting room until you can get to it later. Man, I love that. I, um, there's so much more. I, 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 there's so much more I want to talk to you about and I feel like we could talk for hours, but um, I'm, I'm noticing the time. And before we, before we wrap things up, I am curious, you, you're building yourself. You talk about reprogramming your mind and, and training yourself and, and becoming the best version of yourself. I'm not sure if you use those exact words, but um, yeah. Could, yeah, yeah, close enough, right? <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> Great words. Do you, what do you envision of yourself in the future? You're, you're giving talks and you're working on the podcast and you're, you're building this program. What is it that you're envisioning and, and what do you see for yourself in the future with everything that you've been working on? 
I love that you bring this up in the week that I just became a certified neuro-linguistic programming trainer. Oh, so, wow. Yes. I've, I've, and it, it's taken almost three years to get to this point in my life. Congratulations, it's, man. Thank awesome. you. Thank you, man. I, I love that. I love that. I love, I just love the, the sound of applause. It makes me smile. Yeah. Um, you <laughs> yeah. know, cause one of, one of my ideas behind all of this, again, you know, like you would talked about uh, on my show earlier, it's being able to give back to the community. Well, I would, I've always wanted to be able to train people to use NLP the way that I use NLP in, in my just day to day life. They don't have to go on and, and want to be a trainer of it. They don't have to want to go on and have life coaching clients and things like that. They could just want to use it their own house to make their world better so i became certified in order to be able to train you know right now i love focusing my energy on people in sobriety and recovery because i we, we all speak a very similar language and i see so much suffering even for people who've got one two three four five how many ever years there's still that part of them that's like you know mm -hmm. i was I, I want that amazing life that i was told was available and i can't figure out what is holding me back from it well if that's how someone feels then they can reach out to me and we can get start getting something moving so yeah I've lo i'm looking forward to doing like one day three day five day seminars and workshops wow. uh, with people in our in our world whether they're you know people like you who are actively helping or people who are just in addiction recovery and want to make their lives better down the line you know it's like I, I mean, you know, if you don't shoot for the stars, you won't even hit the moon kind of mentality. I think I want to be bigger than Tony Robbins. I want my name wow. to, and not because I've got the ego that comes from being known throughout the land, but because if I could, if I can hit that kind of stature, then, you know, I've always wanted to be able to say a million people's lives have been mm. guided by my words. Oh and my gosh. Yeah. I mean, come on, right? Like if a million, if you guide a million people, just six degrees of separation, just that yeah. old Kevin Bacon rule, you would have affected every single life on this planet. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. In a positive way. And I mean, what, what, there's so much suffering in this world today. If I could just, oh, I just want everyone to be happy and, and live the life that they've desired and it's, it's available to them. And if NLP and, and the way I teach it, it will help people, then come on, let's, let's all, let's get on this bandwagon and let's just drive it towards the happiest life we've ever even imagined. Well, man, you've, uh, you chipped away one, uh, one less on your, on your million list. You've changed <laughs> me in this conversation and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you more. Cause I think that, um, we have a lot of shared interests and shared experiences and, um, I, uh, I look forward to, I, I consider this like a beginning of a friendship. So I hope that we stay in oh, touch yeah. in the, uh, in the months to come. Oh yeah. One of, that's one of my favorite things about uh, reaching out to other people, it, it, addicts, of course, but like when other people are doing the podcast and cause there's, there's a, there's a drive you have. I mean, this, 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 you know, in a couple of years, you're going to be a licensed and certified therapist. I mean, the yeah. things you're going to do, it's like, there's this, there's an energy when you start to get people with a like mind around you. I picture like birds. I'll, I'll, I'll leave this as my last analogy or metaphor or whatever it is. Birds fly in, in like a, in sort of like an off centered line. And the front bird is putting in way more energy than the back bird. But after mm -hmm. a little while, the front bird goes to the back and all the other birds, they, they, they accelerate because of this one bird putting in all the effort i see all of us very similarly it's like drafting in, in nascar that front car is putting in mm -hmm. a way more effort the car behind it's putting in 80 percent effort and it can now whip in front and use that velocity that that force to make it go even faster than it ever could have that's how i want us in this community to work with one another i i well if i'm the front everybody else is saving a little energy now whip around and mm -hmm. because if you're whipping around you're going to pull me along with you faster than i could was ever have flown on my own so it's like a together we will conquer you know and we're not trying to beat ourselves this isn't a competition of jesse versus adrian it's, it's just life we're just trying mm -hmm. to all mm -hmm. win at life why not just get on board with helping each other draft and i promise you we'll all go further together than we ever would have alone I love that, man. And listen, everybody that's listening, you got to check out Jesse's podcast. It's from sobriety to recovery. And uh, the Instagram handle is the same, right? At, um, at sobriety to recovery. Is that correct? Yeah, at from sobriety to recovery. So throw in the from um, jessemogul.com. There's links to all my podcasts. I've got another podcast called College Success Habits where I talk to pre-addicts. 
from sobriety to recovery, talks to the, the current addicts and people in recovery. College success habits goes after those middle school, high school, and college students who still haven't quite gotten themselves in too deep, who are ready to start making changes in their lives right now today in order not to be a 40-year-old sleeping in his bathtub. <laughs> there it is. Check it out, guys. This honestly, Jesse is amazing to listen to, even when he's just talking on his own. He has so much energy. So please check out his podcast. And thanks so much for listening. And Jesse, thanks so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you soon. I am so glad we've had a chance to connect and become friends, Adrian. This has just been a highlight of my week, man. Thank you so much for oh, being me too, man. you, man. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Absolutely, man. You too.